So I'm 16 years old. My mom walks into my room and she hands me a rock. It fits in the palm of my hand. It's white, kind of smooth, cut like a crystal. And she says, rub this under your armpits. <laughs> what? She says, it's deodorant. I say, it's a rock. She says, just try it. You ever encountered this before? Okay, apparently there is some mineral that has the property of, of uh, killing off the bacteria that causes body odor. So some people, instead of using regular deodorant, will just rub themselves with this rock, okay? Uh, and so <laughs> I'm a little bit skeptical about this, uh, but the idea is, uh, you know, it, regular deodorants, they contain chemicals, and those chemicals might be bad for you. But they're also the reason regular deodorant works, okay? So my mom says, no, 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 no. Uh, lots of people do this. I've been using it for a week. Works just as good as the regular stuff. So I say, okay, mom, grab the rock like a caveman, you know, just rub my armpits, and I go to school. And guess what? It works until gym class. <laughs> Now, I don't know, some of you might use this kind of deodorant, and if it works for you, that is fantastic, but probably you are not an adolescent male, okay? So I, I go back to my mom, and I say, this is, this is not working for me, and she says, no, 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 give it a few days. Sometimes it takes a while to, you know, really kick in, and I say, okay, so I give it a couple of days, and before long, my friends are making excuses not to sit by me at lunch, and I, I can smell myself, like, that's how you know it's really bad, like, when your own stench is distracting you in class, Go back to my mom. She says, no, 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 no. Your body is adjusting, adjusting. It's getting all those toxins out, you know? And I'm like, okay. By the end of the week, I have decided that between the acne and my lack of fashion sense, the girls have enough reason to avoid me. So I go back to the regular deodorant. I actually looked this stuff up uh, just this week. And apparently on online, there are all sorts of explanations for people to explain why, it, even though it seems like it's not working, it, it actually is working. And, and one person said, you know, what, what you really need to do, most people don't, don't rub it on long enough. It's supposed to be like brushing your teeth. You know, it takes like 30 to 60 seconds on each side. And she said, you know you're doing it right if your skin gets kind of red and tender. And maybe that's how it works, you know? It's like the sweat can't get through if your pits are covered with scabs and scars, you know? <laughs> and then she makes this offhanded comment. She says, you know, it works really, really well, especially if you supplement it with another deodorant. I'm like, okay. Uh, sometimes a product claims to do something, maybe even has some diehard fans, but when you see it in action, it just doesn't work. And at some point, you've got to say, well, maybe this doesn't do what it says it does. A lot of people are at that place with the Christian faith. Christians claim to have this vital connection with God that makes us better people. But when you look at Christians, you say, you know what? You don't really look much better than the people around you. And sometimes you're worse. So maybe this isn't doing what you say it does. Today's the second week of our series, Elephants, the questions we can't ignore. There are some questions in every culture that stand between people and seriously considering the claims of Jesus. And they're not peripheral questions. They're not little curiosities. These are questions that have got to be answered first before someone can even take a next step. Christianity is not a live option for someone until they get these things answered. It's sort of like someone who has food allergies. They can't just go to a restaurant and open up the menu and first ask, well, what looks like it'll taste good? They've got to say, well, what's in this? Can I actually digest this before it's even an option? These are those sorts of questions for people. People can't just say, well, do I want Jesus until they get an answer to are Christians homophobic? Why would God allow suffering? What's the deal with hell? And these are big questions. They're hard questions. They do not have easy answers. They're the kind of questions that for followers of Jesus, it would be easy for us to just say, oh, we're not going to go there. We're going to avoid that because they're too hard. 
But it's intellectually dishonest to act like these questions aren't out there. And, and more than that, and we don't really say this enough, but it's not just people on the outside who ask questions about these things. It's also Christ followers themselves. These aren't questions that just keep people out. Sometimes they're the questions that push people out. I've got friends who have bailed on Jesus because they couldn't find answers to these questions. And for them, some of the reason was they couldn't find Christ followers who would take the questions seriously and really wrestle with them in an honest way. They didn't feel like within their church there was a place to talk about these things and have it be all right. But the truth is, we wrestle with these questions. Even pastors do. Some of these questions are mine. And so here at Christ Community, we're not going to ignore these questions. We refuse to. And that's the reason we're spending eight weeks this summer uh, talking about these elephants in the room in Christianity. Today, the question we're looking at is this. How can we justify horrible acts done by Christians? Because if you look at the track record of people who claim to know God, it isn't pretty. It's full of injustice and violence and re religious wars and inquisitions and slavery mistreatment of, of Jews and women and non-European races. Those are just the large-scale issues. There, there are countless other stories, some that are represented by people in this room. Uh, the people have been mistreated by people who are acting in the name of Jesus, uh, power-hungry pastors, uh, abusive parents, some churchgoer that, that shamed you or shunned you, and they said they were doing it in the name of God. Uh, some of these things are acts of hypocrisy. People have really high ideals, but they just fail to live up to them. They, you know, they say, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. But a lot of times, it isn't strictly speaking hypocrisy that's going on. It, it isn't things being done in spite of what someone believes. Sometimes people are doing things because of what they say they believe. Like hypocrisy is this. It's saying, you know, I really care about racism, but I don't have any friends of other ethnicities. But, but sometimes it's more like, you know, I own slaves, and, and the Bible says that that's cool. It's a more serious problem. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City who's written a couple of books defending the Christian faith, he says that this, this is actually uh, the best argument against Christianity. The, the, the best proof that Christianity is a sham is the behavior of the church. So if knowing Jesus is supposed to make us a blessing to the world, how come sometimes we feel like a curse? How, how come it seems like we're making things worse? How, how come it seems like religion makes things more complicated rather than more simple? A lot of skeptics will look at this and they'll say, you know what, that's the reason we need less religion in the world. They say, well, even if it's not less religious, we need to at least need people who are taking their religion less seriously, less fanatical religion. Like a moderate religion might be okay, but you don't want anything too exclusive, nothing too dogmatic. Because people who take their religion too seriously, they're going to use it as a tool for injustice, a weapon against people who disagree with them. It's going to be divisive and dangerous. If the world were less religious, it would be a better place. So how do we respond when people say religious people are hypocrites who do horrible things? Here's the first thing I say. Religious people are hypocrites who do horrible things. Why would I say that? It's because I know a lot of religious people. I actually am a professional religious person. Um, and so for every story of hypocrisy that you've got, I've got three. I'm also a student of history. And there is no denying that religion, including Christianity, has contributed to all sorts of conflict and injustice. Even if it's not the spark of the conflict, sometimes it's the fuel that's poured on the fire that makes it a lot harder to put out. But here's the thing. You do not have to find a skeptic to hear these kinds of complaints about religion. All you need to do is open the Bible. 
Because you will find these sorts of criticisms on the lips of the prophets and the apostles and especially Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, let's go ahead and turn to one of these examples in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Luke was a medical doctor. He was an early follower of Jesus and he was one of the first historians of the Christian movement. Uh, The book of Luke that has his name uh, is actually a really well-researched biography of Jesus, uh, and it's one of four in the New Testament, along with Matthew, Mark, and John. There we go. Uh, And what we're reading about here in chapter 11 uh, is an argument between Jesus and a group of people called the Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees were a a religious and political movement in first century Judaism, Uh, and what they were doing is they were trying to call the nation of Israel to take God's law more seriously. They thought, we've got to be more faithful to the things uh, written in our Bible. And and so in the first century, this was a a group of people that everybody would say, these are pretty devout, these are respected religious people. But Jesus wasn't impressed with them. Uh, Let's start reading in verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus didn't first wash before the meal. Uh, Now, point of clarification here. Uh, This is not uh, washing for the sake of germs. Uh, This was a ritual cleansing that that Pharisees did. They said, uh, you want to be religiously pure. And so they did this before they ate meals. But Jesus didn't do that. So he's criticizing him. Then the Lord, then Jesus said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dishes, but inside you? You're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what's inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs. Like you pay attention to all these little religious details, but you miss the big stuff. You neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. Uh, Jesus is not a very polite dinner guest. Uh, He does something you shouldn't do. Uh, He just criticizes the host. And the the thing is, we think of Jesus as kind of meek and mild, kind of in popular imagination, but he gets pretty fiery when he sees injustice, and, and that offends people. Uh, And so that's why someone who was sitting there at the table uh, responded to him. He said, one of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also, which is a terrible mistake because Jesus turns on him. He replies, you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry and you yourselves won't lift a finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, you build their tombs. Jesus keeps going, but we'll stop there. In those last couple of verses, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you know, you look back on your history and you see religious persecution and violence and injustice. And when you see those things, you assume you would have sided with the good guys, that you would have been on the side of the prophets, not the people killing them. But he's saying what you don't realize is that your spiritual ancestors, your predecessors, are the ones who are doing the killing. It's sort of like when white Christians look back on slavery and we say, you know, I would have been an abolitionist. But we don't acknowledge that some of the people who think the same things we do, who believe the same beliefs we do, were fighting to keep their slaves. We can't presume with the benefit of hindsight that we would have picked the right side if we were there. 
Jesus never pulls punches when he's talking to people who use their religion as a cover-up or a justification for evil actions. According to Jesus, at least some religious people really are hypocrites who do horrible things in the name of religion. Now, it's tempting at this point for Christ followers to, to see this and try to kind of wiggle out of it, to try to avoid this fact. A lot of people will try to defend Christianity by pointing out, you know, a lot of those things in the past, you know, the Inquisitions and, and uh, you know, the Crusades and things like that, we, we, it's more complicated than you think. And they'll try to go back in, in the historical record and put some nuance on it. You know, they'll say, you know, the Crusades, like a lot of them were more defensive wars than offensive wars. A lot of Muslim uh, nations had uh, invaded Europe and they were fighting back. Or uh, they'll say, you know, the religious wars in the Middle Ages, you know, a lot of those were sparked from political things, not so much religious things. Or they'll say, you know, the Inquisition, it wasn't quite as big of a deal as most people uh, make it out to be. And they'll, they'll try to minimize it. And, and frankly, a lot of this is true. Uh, most of us are pretty ignorant of history. And most of the things we think we know are pretty simplistic. Uh, so it helps to have some uh, complexity, some nuance added to things. But even so, there, there is no denying that individual Christians, Christian churches, Christian groups have participated in unjust actions over the course of our 2,000-year history. It, we, we cannot explain it all away. And the fact that we've got so much that we need to re-explain should tell us that something was wrong. The, the other thing that people will do is they, they will point out that a lot of these evil actions, they were done by people who claimed to be Christ followers, but weren't really. Uh, they claimed to know Jesus, but it wasn't actually true. And, and there's a lot of merit to this because Jesus himself said this. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and uh, in your name perform many miracles? We did all this religious stuff, but I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. A away from me, you evildoers. So just because someone claims to know God doesn't mean God's going to claim to know them. Uh, this helps a lot with, with de denouncing certain fringe groups that claim to be Christian. You know, people who, uh, like the KKK and Westboro Baptist Church and people who, who do evil things in the name of Jesus. But it only gets us so far. Uh, because uh, e even if we rule out those people, there are still some people who we might even call heroes of the faith who participated in some unjust behavior. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the, the reformer who defended the gospel, he also said that Jews should be attacked and driven out of their towns. Jonathan Edwards, arguably the greatest theologian America has ever produced, was a slave owner. The, the early church fathers uh, argued both for the deity of Jesus and the inferiority of women. So we can't get away from it. Christians, even people that we were pretty sure these are the real deal, have used our faith for injustice. So what do we do with that? We own it. We own it. Those of us who are Christ followers need to say, it's actually true. We don't live up to our own standards. And we even use our precious faith to defend things that Jesus says we shouldn't do. Things, things that we rationalize, we should have just repented of. And we're wrong. And we're sorry. Now, I know that that might sound weird to some people. Some people might say, wait, 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 wait. I never did any of those things. I never owned a slave. I never killed a heretic. Like, those are other people. That's in the past. Like, I don't need to take responsibility for someone else's actions. And, and I get why that might seem weird. Like, in our culture, we think of uh, responsibility and guilt in purely individual terms most of the time. But according to the Bible, there is such a thing as corporate or collective guilt. 
There are multiple places, multiple places, where individual members of a group will confess the sins of the entire group, even if they didn't directly participate in the sinful actions. One of the best examples of this is in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is uh, in exile uh, with the people of Israel. The people of Israel have been uh, exiled in this other country for 70 years for sins that were committed two generations earlier. Uh, Daniel wasn't even born when the sins were committed. And yet he prays this prayer. It's a prayer of confession. He says, Lord, great and awesome God, we, not they, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. And the book of Daniel goes out of its way to show that Daniel was incredibly, incredibly faithful and obedient to God. And not only did he not ignore the prophets, he actually was one of the prophets. And so in this prayer, Daniel is not confessing his personal sin. He's confessing the sin of the group that he's a part of. There are lots of examples of this in the Bible. Jeremiah does this. Isaiah does this. Nehemiah does this. Ezra does this. God doesn't just see us as individual people. God also sees us as part of the group that we belong to. So if you are a follower of Jesus, God sees you as part of his collective body, the church. And there are some sins committed by groups of Christ followers that we as the whole body need to acknowledge. It is appropriate for us to confess both to God and to the world that's watching us that members of our spiritual family have used our faith to justify evil and it's wrong and we're sorry on their behalf. We don't need to be defensive about it. We can just say sorry. We can say along with the skeptics, Christians are hypocrites who do horrible things. But we don't stop there. We add this. Christians are hypocrites who do horrible things just like everybody else. And this is where we've got to get really honest. Believers, explorers, skeptics alike. We're all hypocrites, aren't we? Like, like how many of you out there, you live perfectly consistently with your values. You, you have never, you've never acted like you were better than you really were. That you've never expressed a strong public opinion about something and then done the opposite in private. Because if you found the secret to that, I would love to talk to you about it. That would be amazing. But we're all hypocrites. Christians, people of other faiths, skeptics, agnostics, everybody. And what about doing horrible things in the name of your beliefs? Is that just a Christian problem? Well, obviously it's not. I mean, you can look at other religions. We, we, we won't do this, but you could go through Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and, and look at all the injustices done in the name of those faiths. But it also happens with secular groups. I mean, the really obvious examples uh, are the atheistic nations of the 20th century. Uh, communist China, Soviet Union. Uh, millions of people slaughtered, not in the name of God, not in the name of a faith, but of a political and economic ideology. And it's not just on the left side of the political spectrum. You can look at uh, democracies, the French Revolution, bloody pursuit of liberty, even wars in, in the name of defending democracy, spreading democracy. You, you don't need religion for people to justify acts of violence or discrimination or injustice. Now, let me make it really clear what I'm not trying to do here. Now, I'm not trying to do uh, what my daughter did the other day when I caught her and her sister fighting. I, I walk in and I say, hey, did you hit your sister? And she says, yeah, but she called me poop face. It's like, okay, you're just trying to distract from what you did by saying what she did. Now, I'm not trying to divert attention from what Christians have done. Now, I'm also not trying to say, you know, you know what, they did things that were so much worse that ours really isn't that bad in comparison. No, no, no. 
What I'm trying to say is we're all in this mess. And I want to ask the question, why are all of us hypocrites? Why do we all do horrible things? Because it's not a Christian problem. It's not a religious problem. It's a human problem. Why do we do this? Every person, every society has stories that we tell to make sense out of the world. The stories that tell us what's most important in life, what's really valuable, uh, what are the things worth pursuing. Uh, some of our stories say, you know, your comfort, your, your happiness in life, that's the most important thing. Pursue that. Some will say, no, no, it's your accomplishment, your achievement. You got to do something meaningful with your life. So, some stories say, you, you know, your personal honor is most important or the honor of your family or the honor of your, your nation or your group. Maybe the most important thing is submission to the will of God. Whatever it is, our stories tell us what is so valuable, what's preeminent importance, that we can sacrifice other things for the sake of that. And the reason all of us are hypocrites is because we've got multiple stories playing out, competing in our hearts and our minds. This is what's going on actually in this story with the Pharisees. The Pharisees have this public story that I'm sure they really believed. That They say, you know what's really important? Obeying God, doing what the Bible says, that's what's most important. But what Jesus does is he comes and exposes that there was another story going on in their hearts that was really driving them. A story that said your personal power, your personal wealth, that's the most important thing. Defend that, pursue that. And here's what hypocrites do. Uh, they live inconsistently because they've got these two stories. But rather than admitting that we're wrong, we, we just use the public story to justify this other behavior. So uh, someone who's a workaholic, they, they hardly ever see their family. And you say, well, why are you always working? And they say, uh, their heart, what their heart says is, you know, I'm only valuable if I achieve, if I accomplish, if I get all this done, if I'm on top of things. But they'll use the public story and say, you know what, I, I work so hard because I love my family and I want to provide for them, even though I never see them. The, the religious hypocrite is doing the same thing. They're living one story out of their heart, but we use the public story of our faith to justify, to explain our inconsistency. This doesn't just happen at the individual level. It happens with groups, communities, societies. Uh, societies will use their story uh, to explain unjust behavior, to make it actually look like it's just. So, so if your group's story is, you know, some races actually are superior to others, then you can justify exterminating or uh, enslaving other ethnicities. If your group's story is, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, you can justify suppressing individual liberty and rights and, and dissent. If your story is, you know, uh, people who work hard, they get rich, and people who don't, don't, then you can justify your neglect of the poor because, you know, they're getting what they earned. Here's how religion does this. If your story is God loves good people and he hates bad people, well, it's easy to see how that's one step away from I love good people and I hate bad people. And at some level, this is the story most religions tell, that the people who keep the rules, the people who conform, those are the people who get blessed. And the sinners, the, the, the deviants, those are the ones who get punished. The, the world is divided into good guys and bad guys. And as soon as you label yourself or your group the good guys, man, you've got a great tool for all those other people who are bad guys. You can justify all sorts of acts. So we're kind of in a bind. Everybody tells a story, every, every worldview, every philosophy, every religion. And those stories, every single one of them creates hypocrites and injustice. What we really need is to find a story that if we actually believed it, if we took it into our heart, that that story would do the opposite. And so that's why I think what we need is more, not less commitment to Jesus. 
The skeptic's argument that is that if religion leads to hypocrisy and injustice, we need less religion. But the problem is if you eliminate the religious story, some other story is going to take its place and it's going to do the exact same thing and keep generating that hypocrisy. So what I want to argue is this, that the Christian story, that the reason Christians commit injustice and hypocrisy is not because we're too fanatical about our story, about our faith. It's not because we take it too seriously. It's because we don't take it seriously enough. Because the more deeply you believe the Christian story, the more committed you are to it, the more humble it's going to make you. And the more it's going to make you love people who are different from you. Because here's the first thing the Christian story tells us. It tells us that every single person Every single person was made in the image of God. God created you and every person you've ever met to be in a relationship with him and to reflect his goodness and his beauty and his glory and his creativity out into the world. That's what we were made to do. The more deeply you believe that, the more you take that into your heart, it is going to transform you so that you encounter every single person as someone supremely valuable, someone worthy of honor and kindness, even if they're not part of your group. The more deeply you believe that, the less surprised you're going to be when you meet someone who doesn't agree with you, who doesn't believe what you do, but they show a great moral strength in some area, or they've got insight into some truth about the world that you didn't realize. If people were made to reflect God, we shouldn't be surprised if we see God's reflection in other people. The Christian story goes on to say, not only are we made in God's image, but every single one of us sins. All of us are sinners. What that means is that every one of us has walked away from that calling that God made us for. We've chosen to go our way instead of God's way. Instead of filling the world with goodness and beauty and love and life, we've molded the world to our own selfish desires. Our hearts are bent and twisted, and that's the reason why our world, our societies are full of injustice. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And if you believe that, if you get that, if you take that into yourself and say, this is the true story about the world, what it's going to do is not just make it so that you see all the evil out there, but it also makes you see the selfishness, the injustice that lives in your own heart. The, the Christian story does not divide the world into good guys and bad guys. It divides the world into bad guys and Jesus. And since I'm not Jesus, it's never gonna surprise me when someone points out that I'm acting like a bad guy. This is actually the first step towards Jesus is admitting that you're messed up. It means that when we take aim at the evil in the world, the first place we point is at ourselves. Jesus said it this way. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to that big old plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The Christian story should humble us. Make it so that the, the evil that looms largest is the evil that lives inside of us. If we take it seriously, we're, we're going to look down on others a lot less. We're going to be much more open to critique. That we're going to be ready to admit that we were wrong and change course. Arrogant, prideful, judgmental Christians are not taking the Christian story too seriously. They're not taking it seriously enough. Thankfully, that's not where the Christian story ends. It's not just a declaration that we are sinners but goes on to say that God loves sinners. He, he loves sinners enough to show up himself and die for us. Now listen to what it says in the book of Romans, which is a, a letter written by an early leader in the Christian faith. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, although for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the heart of the Christian story. This is where it gets really, really powerful. Because if the world is divided into bad guys and Jesus, what happens when Jesus looks at all of us bad guys? He could have rightfully said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reject them. I'm gonna punish them. I'm gonna destroy them. I'm, I'm out to get them. I mean, that's how it works, right? Like good, good versus evil, like the hero attacks the villain. That's, that's how it goes. That's not what Jesus does. He says, I'm gonna love them. Even before they change their minds about me, I'm gonna love them. Even before they admit that they're wrong, I'm gonna love them. Even before they clean up their act, I'm gonna love them. He says, when we were still powerless, when we were still sinners, when we were still enemies, Jesus said, I'm gonna die for them. Jesus didn't just tolerate his enemies. He gave himself for us. He sacrificed for us. He pursued what was best for us, even though we didn't deserve it, hadn't asked for it, and it cost him everything. Now, what happens if you take that story and you let it sink down into the deepest places of your heart? How, how will you treat people who are not like you? How, how will you treat people outside of your group? How will you treat people who are weak or powerless in society? How will you treat people who you see as bad guys, who you see as enemies? Or you're going to ask the question, well, how did Jesus treat me when I was an outsider? How did he treat me when I was powerless? How did he treat me when I was his enemy? The, the, the reason Christians have committed injustice is not because we've been too fanatical about this story. It's because we haven't been fanatical enough. Here's the evidence for this. If you look at the places where Christians have actually done good for the world, not just for our own little group, but for people outside of our faith who didn't believe what we believe, you will see people who are getting more committed, not less committed to this story. So you look at the early centuries of the church in the Roman Empire, Christians are still a minority sect. The, 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 the reason the movement grew so much was in large part because at that time, the Christians were sacrificially loving non-Christians. Followers of Jesus gained a reputation for rescuing abandoned children from dumps and raising them as their own, of caring for orphans and widows, welcoming poor into their community when they had been excluded from other communities. There was an emperor, a pagan emperor, who was so concerned about the growth of the Christian movement that he wrote a letter to one of his advisors, and he said this. He said, that the Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us, but they're getting it from the Christians. When there were natural disasters, when there were battles in cities, it was really common for people in the city to be fleeing to the countryside to get away from the danger. At the same time, the Christians would be rushing into the center of the city to care for the sick and for the dying and the wounded. One famous example of this was there was a plague in the city of Caesarea, and an eyewitness wrote an account of what he saw the Christians doing. He said, all day long, some of them tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers of people with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. And as these Christians were, were serving people in need, what actually happened was they, they caught the disease and many of them died. You've got to ask the question, but why did they risk everything, even their lives, for the sake of people of other groups, other religions, people who couldn't repay them, people who actually hated them? Why would they do that? It's because they were convinced that that's what God did for them. It, it wasn't because they were less committed, it was because they were more committed to the story of Jesus. The other place you see this is in the places where Christians have been participating in injustice, 
and then change course. It's what you see there is people moving closer to Christian teaching, not further away. So during the transatlantic slave trade, many, many Christians participated in this. There are Christians who were slave traders, slave owners, and even those who weren't participating directly, they tolerated the slave trade and they benefited from the money and the wealth that came into society because of it. And so the entire era is one of great shame for followers of Jesus. We, we, we failed. But what's interesting is that the changes that led to abolition was not the result of people saying, you know what, Christians are doing this horrible thing over here, so maybe we should move away from Christianity if that's what the result is. Instead, what they did is, no, let's look deeper into the Christian story. So in England, there was no war to end slavery. It happened through a, a long political and social campaign uh, by, run by people like William Wilberforce and other uh, followers of Christ. And what they did is they, they looked at the, the, the Christian story and they became, became convinced because of their faith, not in spite of it, that this was wrong. It needed to end. And, and they actually used that as an appeal to the people around them. They, they appealed to Christian convictions of people in society. And, and so when abolition came in England, it was a really costly decision. The historians and economists have looked at that time and they said the abolition of slavery uh, would be considered economic suicide because the empire was so dependent on, on slave labor. This was not a convenient decision, but it was one that as people got closer to the, the, the roots of the Christian story, they said it's got to happen even if it's difficult. The, the same is true in the 20th century in the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. experiences uh, discrimination and violence from white Christians he doesn't say, if, the, if those people believe in this, if, that, if that's what Christianity produces, well, then we, we need to move away from that. It's obviously not working. He said, no, 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 no. We need to go deeper into Christianity. If, if the cross was the most powerful act of liberation ever, then that's gonna be our model. He, he, he drew on the message of Jesus, and that's what gave him the courage to love his enemies, to engage in nonviolent protests, to endure even though he faced opposition. We're not afraid to confess that Christians have done all sorts of evil things and that we're wrong and we're sorry. I even want to say to those of you here who have been personally hurt by someone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus, someone who represented him in some way, maybe it was a parent, a church member, a pastor, a community, if you've been treated poorly by someone in the name of Jesus, I, I want to say sorry. On behalf of Christians, on behalf of churches, that, that was wrong, and it shouldn't have happened. But here's what I want to plead with you. Do not judge the truth, the beauty, the goodness, the power of the gospel of Jesus based on the behavior of people who are living out of line with that. Look at Jesus himself. Because the only antidote to the human problem of hypocrisy and injustice is more, not less commitment to him. We're gonna sing one final song. As we do that, we're gonna collect our tithes and offerings, which are an expression of thanks for what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. God, I, I wanna pray for those people here who are feeling wounded and scarred because of something one of your followers did to them. God, God, I pray that you would draw near to them, that they would uh, know that you are for them regardless of what people have done to them. God, I, I pray that you would uh, uh, give them healing in that area, that you would uh, speak truth into that area, that they would know that you are loving and good and that you are for them and you want them. God, I pray for people who are here who uh, are skeptical about the Christian faith. They're wondering if you're even real. They're wondering if uh, this is authentic. 
God, I, I pray that, that you would honor their seeking and their wrestling and the questions that they're asking. That you would reveal yourself to them, that you would show yourself to be true, that you would give them understanding about the things they're, they're asking. I pray, pray that you would uh, move in their lives. And, and God, I, I, I pray for myself and for fellow, fellow Christ followers here. I, I, I want to just confess my own hypocrisy. I, I get up here uh, week in and week out and I, I say things that I don't live up to myself. And so God, I, I, I am sorry. God, I pray that you would forgive me, forgive us for when we used your word and your name to do things we should have repented of. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.